contest anything right now. People get all of these hangups. Well, I'd have to develop it. I'd have to build this. I'd have to have money. And you don't have to. You can go out and start talking about it. You can identify your target market and start running ads or posts and talking to people and see if it resonates. So I just say the minute you think you're onto something, start running tests. This is Devin Miller here with another episode of The Inventive Journey, and I am your host, Devin Miller, the serial entrepreneur that's also the founder and CEO of Miller IP Law, where we help uh, startups and small businesses with their patents and trademarks. And today we have a great uh, guest uh, that has a a great journey to tell today. It's uh, Melinda, and I think, is it Kohler or Cooler? I always want to, I always get confused. Yeah, (laughs) Kohler. Okay, just wanted to make sure I didn't, uh, I was going to say Kohler, they're like, maybe I misremembered. So we got <laughs> Melinda Cooler. And uh, so she has a fun journey. So she started out, uh, she did some, uh, what, or did some uh, English or ESL and Spanish teaching and la- or la- language learning, uh, went over and did some things with Disney, fell in love with technology. And uh, that uh, then took her on the path to where she's at today. So without giving away too much of her surprise, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. So I gave, I'm sure, what was a, 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 ho- a horribly inadequate uh, introduction to yourself, <laughs> but nonetheless, that's what you get. But um, with that, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about your journey, kind of where, uh, where you went and then how you got to where you're at today? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're right. I did start in education. I uh, taught ESL in Italy and Spain, did some teaching out here in the States and got recruited directly from teaching into tech. Uh, It was completely spontaneous. I had no idea that I would wind up uh, working in in startups. But around the outset of the iPad, I went to visit a friend after work who was the lead engineer at a small startup called TallChair. And they were in talks with Disney to build interactive books on this new iPad. And I met the team and wound up joining a week later to lead the production of the books. Oh, cool. So, so you, you're in the teacher. So how long were you a teacher for again? Uh, I did various teaching for about five years. All right. So you're a teacher for about five years. And, at, we, and then I assume at the time you were a teacher, your friend approached you and said, hey, we're in talks with Disney. They want us to do interactive books. Did you, was it just a personal connection or what made you, what made you want to, or what made him reach out to you or want to, to have you involved? Cause you know, there, what, and nothing against your skills. There are plenty of teachers, there are a lot of teachers out there <laughs> and you know, it doesn't, it, it's on the one sense, it makes sense. And on the other, it wouldn't have been necessarily, okay, I'm going to do interactive books. I'm going to go talk with a teacher about it. And I make sense, but it wouldn't have necessarily been, I might go talk with, you know, somebody that's in the electronics industry or the book industry. So what made him reach out to you? Yeah, no, you're exactly right. So um, <laughs> I have a love for storytelling. Mm. Uh, I have a degree in English and a master's in Spanish and had long been sharing all of my stories with my friends. Um, mm. And even though I wasn't working in tech, I always was coming to the dinners and get togethers with new ideas. And at one point had worked with that group of friends to kick off a project called um, 
fashion 411 because I wanted help when I transitioned from life in Spain to life in San Francisco. Uh, actually, we did quite a bit of work on fashion 411. And then a year later, Hold a on. startup so called... I, I, would, I had no, absolutely nothing about fashion, but I, I would what? assume that Europe and Spain and that would have been more fashionable in U.S. So why did you need help when you moved to San Diego from Spain? I have no idea about Well, and that's exactly the problem. People in San Francisco don't dress up. So I was coming from a culture where I knew I how to dress. How did you not dress up to move to San Francisco? Yes, not, yes. I was so thinking the opposite, where you had to dress up more to be in San Francisco, which didn't make sense. So, all right, got yes. it. Yes, exactly. And the ironic thing about that is about a year after we had started building it, there was an app called Go Try It On, which got purchased by Rent the Runway. And we all just kind of threw up our hands and said, well, that could have been a good idea. So he definitely had me in mind as this storyteller and interested in tech and had already kicked off and led a group of our friends who were engineers to start building something. So you're right. It was more than just being a teacher. Fair enough. And again, nothing gets teachers. Yeah. My sister's a teacher and I also, my mother-in-law's a teacher. So if they're listening, I wasn't saying anything different against <laughs> teachers. I was just saying, or just trying to connect the dots there. So no, that makes perfect sense. So, so then you, you start up, you, they bring you on, you move over, you work with the interactive books and you work with the, you know, Disney or via them with Disney, which is a, obviously a, a, you know, everybody knows who Disney is and it's a cool uh, thing. So then pick up with their journey from there. Didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was amazing. We built 20 different books that year, four of them with Disney, two of them with Fisher Price. I got to go to the Pixar campus and the Fisher Price campus. Um, everybody loved what we were building. Uh, both Disney and Fisher Price chose our platform at the time because it was the best out there for building interactive books. And after building and releasing and marketing, uh, both Disney and Fisher Price came back to us with the big news that the cost of making these books was about the same as making video games. And video games sold and interactive books weren't selling. At least the ones that we were making weren't selling at the rate that they would need to be. Uh, So the whole thing just kind of collapsed. So my first startup was also the first startup and only startup that I've seen completely uh, fail uh, due to product market fit. Hmm. I mean, once Disney tells you yes, and then no, there's no market for it. That's kind of, for us, that was the end. Yeah. So, and, and that's, I think that's an interesting, so if you were, you're, you're doing it, Disney is a dream and you got to do go, which is, maybe it's, it just sounds cool. Is a Pixar campus cool? Is that a, an interesting place or is that just, it sounds a lot cooler than it is? Uh, I mean, <laughs> It is really cool because they have giant life-size characters here and there. And we got to see John Lasseter's office, which was filled with toys and things. We got to see all sorts of awards and storyboarding. So, okay. so it was as cool it, as you it could was think. Cool. Okay. It was yeah, very I just, cool. I just, it just sound, Pixar just sounds cool. So, but you got to do yeah. that. You got to go on the campus. You, they loved your technology. And then they promptly or impromptu turned around and said, and we'll take a pass type of a thing. And so yeah. it, was yeah. It, was it a, all our eggs were in the Disney basket and once, you know, once Disney fell through, you decided we'll all part ways or did you keep trying to mo- keep doing something with the business or how did you kind of wind that one down? Yeah. So 
it, it was mostly Disney and Fisher Price that were funding us at that time uh, with all of their projects and the contracts to keep building those books on the platform. And all of the eggs were in those baskets. Uh, we did have other smaller clients, but the cost to continue building the software and continue building the books without those clients, yeah, it was too much and didn't make sense as a business model. And our other clients were having the same challenge too, even at their uh, smaller level. But it just, it, it takes a lot, or at least then. Now technology for building interactive books is going to be much easier to work with, but okay. at that no, point, like, we weren't there yet. So, yeah. so you, you did that and you said, okay, now we're going to, we want, you wound that company down and then where did it take you from there? Did you go back to education? Did you decide, I'd love the startup, I love technology, I'm going to keep working, or how did that go? Yeah, I loved the startup life. I loved the discovery process, the building new things, and I immediately joined a new company, uh, which is a very funny company. It's called iCracked. They were the Uber for on-demand iPhone repair and services. Um, this is before Apple Care came out. Mm. So I joined the team and they kind of had some ideas of the initiatives that I would lead. And around the time that I joined, there were... Join the team to do what? So did, were you joined as a founder, joined as a salesperson, joined as a teacher? Uh, I, joined, I joined as a growth lead working uh, with the co-founder okay. to... Uh, help scale the on-demand workforce population. Okay. But the the model that they had in mind for me to scale that population changed immediately as soon as I got there and kind of dug into it a little bit. I came back and proposed a new model, built a new growth team, and we wound up scaling the on-demand community from... 200 to I think 1200 uh around the time was around the time that I left I was there for about a year and a half uh I loved it the community was fantastic uh all of the we called them iTechs and they were an amazing group of people super tech savvy about the mechanics of things and really in need of that supplemental income so it was really cool to be able to uh supply that additional income and kind of join the, uh, you know, on-demand economy for that group of people. Mm. So you did that. So how did that business go? Or did you make an exit or did Apple care come in and kill the business or how did that go? Well, <laughs> they kept going after I left. Um, yeah. Apple care came out and the numbers definitely started to change and got more challenging. We were explosive growth, explosive growth. We had just started launching, um, I cracked internationally, opened offices in London and Germany. Uh, those offices wound up failing. They pulled back. I saw the writing on the wall. And at that point, had my first idea that I wanted to test for what is now Lessons Up. Mm. Uh, so I decided to go test my own idea. And we parted on great terms I've actually worked with several people uh, from my original growth team there over the years. So, so great was, people. So you, lessons up, no, and not to jump in. So lessons up, you did that, it, or sorry, not lessons up, but you did the eye crack and you did that, you wound it down. So what was the, what was the genesis of the idea or how did you come up with lessons up or how did that start out or what did that look like? 
Yeah. So, I mean, at that time I was working closely with a community of people who went and visited people to fix their iPhones. Um, I was also working closely at iCracked with our customer support operations and learning a lot about customer support operations in general mm. and saw that there's always a percentage of the population that is underserved by customer support. And I also at the same time had people in my life turning me into their personal customer support friends and family because they didn't know where to go. So okay. I thought, well, if I can build an on-demand workforce to go and fix iPhones, I could probably build an on-demand workforce to go and teach people how to use their iPhones to meet that need for those who are just completely underserved by customer support. And we haven't jumped into it. Maybe it's a good time. And so maybe yeah. just give the, the 10 second or the 20 second summary of what is lessons up or what, or how does it do it? So that way it kind of gives a context for what people are, you know, what you're, what uh, you moved over into. Yeah, absolutely. So we officially launched lessons up this year, even though I did that test back then, uh, we teach technology. I have a community of tech instructors who do lessons over phone and video, personal one-on-one, -on -one, typically with seniors. And we're starting to develop community programs as well to support um, companies and communities who need tech training and not tech support. So. so if I were to simplify that, you teach elderly populations how to use technology? We help seniors use technology. All right. So I get it's more complex. I would just simplify it for Yeah, that's great. So you do that. And, and so the... And, Lots of interesting things. May I'll jump into it just a second. So how did you, you get it up and going? How long did it take to develop, to, to develop the curriculum? How did you figure out which technologies seniors would, you know, and I guess I shouldn't say only seniors, but people would want to use, whether it's a laptop, whether it's an iPhone, whether it's an iPad, you know, how did you kind of figure out what was the most helpful or what they would want, you know, what would be worthwhile to train them on or to help them? To yeah. Understand? Yeah. Great questions. So I, definitely came from the mindset of let's just run a test. Um, with the growth team, that's all that we did. Uh, I had five people on that team. Each of them ran three tests a month so that we could compare and figure out what was going to work to scale the on-demand population. So when I first set out to do this, I didn't think through some of those big questions first. I first decided to kind of go and explore and see what happened. And what happened was shocking and kind of created the path. I did a single post on Nextdoor. Hmm. At that time, Nextdoor was a newer app. Very few people were on it, but the people who were tended to be the older generations. They love knowing who's in their neighborhood and what's going on. So this was 2016. And I was also living um, in an area of Oakland that was more populated with elderly. So I just put out a single post offering lessons in technology and had an outpour of responses and then developed curriculum by giving lessons and figuring out what people needed. Uh, it definitely helped that I'm a teacher and I developed a lot of curriculum for ESL, which is very similar to uh, learning tech. It's like learning a new language. So I kind of had a fallback structure, uh, which I can talk, talk about too, if that's helpful. Sure, go ahead. Yeah. So uh, the idea is to kind of go in and first, whoever I'm working with, 
understand what technology is in their life. So sort of, you know, identify the tools and then talk through the challenges and then identify some learning goals and then start there with those learning goals. So that was the very basic model that I went in with that I kind of brought with me from all of the curriculum development that I had done and it worked. <laughs> I wound up creating a, a methodology for customized lessons to meet needs for a, a large population with varying levels of tech literacy. So question on that and kind of an aside, but so if you're, to, you're teaching elderly people and I get, I don't know, is there a better way to refer to them? Or is it elderly or older population people that are technology challenged, which would include other, maybe, probably my wife to a degree, although she never listens to the podcast. So I can always talk about my wife because <laughs> to hear from me enough for a moment. I love her. So no, no offense. But you teach people how to use technology it almost seems, but your lessons up is, you know, lessonsup.com. Is that where most people find you? How do people, if they don't know how to use technology, then how do they find you to do it? Or is it like more of, you know, I want to have my, I want to FaceTime with my grandparents, right? And so the grandkids want to. So we order that, you know, order our, the grandparents a lesson and order so they know how to FaceTime and how they do it. You know, how does that work or how do you find people in order to teach? Yeah. Um, such a great question because it gets right into who are we really marketing to when we market lessons up. Uh, I got lucky in 2016 with the app next door. Mm. It's a little bit different now in 2020 because there's a lot going on on next door these, this day and age, but there are still plenty of online spaces that are senior friendly, uh, Pinterest, Facebook, mm. next door. So it's just testing ads and posts if we want to meet seniors where they are. There is also, like you said, uh, marketing to the younger generations, people who don't have time to teach mom or grandma how to do X, Y, and Z on the iPhone. Um, that's also a very valid <laughs> marketing tactic for us. And then there's also partnerships uh, working directly with senior spaces where there's already a trusted relationship um, between seniors and the like a senior living home or senior centers. So then one other, and I, I just find the idea and the concept and technology interesting. So I'm bouncing around a little bit, but so when you do that, you know, if I were to, if I've learned anything from Shark Tank or, or other experiences, they always hammer you on. It's hard to scale, right? Meaning it's hard to duplicate yourself and it's hard to find. So you do more of online lessons and more of, teaching them via the via technology or is it more of a hey they need that face-to-face -face interaction somebody to sit down and show them how to do it and if it's a ladder how do you find good qualified people to do that yeah so we do have 11 tech instructors they all come from education or similar backgrounds so some of them are teachers or some of them have worked in tech support one was in um, health education so they have experience with instruction and they're also tech savvy. Uh, we have a vetting process and a training process, but you're right. It, the hardest thing is always duplicating yourself. Um, uh, I found some fantastic tech instructors who, uh, the experience that I created uh, is designed to help seniors build skills over the course of a few lessons. Uh, there's a lot to learn and it's daunting to try to do it at once, but if you're doing a good job, 
they will come back and uh, sign up for their full program of, you know, four to six lessons or however many it may be, depending on learning goals. And so, yeah, our tech instructors are doing that. So it's been great to see. All right. So if you take the, the next six to 12 months, so got it, you know, made your leaps between the different things, landing on this, building it, going well, find your instructors. What's the next six to 12 months look like for you guys? Yeah. Uh, it's more marketing tests to grow the user population and tech instructor population to, to scale, to meet those needs. Uh, so the, the more in, the interesting challenge, which hopefully we'll get to take on, is that the partnerships that we have in progress have massive needs. Uh, when we talk to some of the retirement communities or senior centers or some of our health affiliates like the National Digital Inclusion Alliance or our partners at the SF Tech Council, they're talking about millions of seniors who need tech literacy support, especially with essential services like telehealth. And when I tell them that I have 11, they get very excited about the program. And then when I say that I have 11 instructors, <laughs> they, they kind of look at me like, are you crazy? <laughs> yeah. So it's uh, doing a few small pilot programs to get it just right for massive demand. And then, yeah, scaling the tech instructor community to meet that demand. But it is going to have to be similar to um, other on-demand workforces. And yeah, luckily one of my co-founders helped scale the um, Uber driver community and then Uber Eats community. And then I've had some experience scaling on-demand workforce as well. So we're ready. All right. Well, that's <laughs> awesome. And I think that that one, that one's one that I, I think there's a common thread is it's, oh, it's hard to duplicate yourself. So you have to figure out a process to get I always look at, you know, and I, somebody always talked about, you know, if you can get the 80-20 roller, if you get somebody that can do 80% as good as you are, you're doing great in the sense that nobody's ever going to be exactly the same as you and to have the expectations they're going to do it exactly the same as you would is unrealistic. But if they can do at least 80% as good of a job, then they're probably going to do an awesome job and do stellar their position anyway. Exactly. And it's true. It is hard to uh, let go of. And I, you know, in the early stages of routing customers that I've talked to, to lessons, there, there might be some nervousness and a lot of check-ins with the tech instructor. Well, are you sure? Because, you know, this person isn't even on the internet on their iPhone yet. So you're going to have to do X and they're like, yeah, you know, they've got it. Okay. Got to, got to trust. So, all right. Well, cool. Well, um, so we reach in, unfortunately, or, or fortunately, whichever you look at the end of the podcast. Um, so I always end the podcast with two questions. So I'll, I'll hit on those now. So the first question I always ask is, what is the worst business decision you ever made? Well, it, it's funny. I mean, I, I had mentioned that I tested lessons up in 2016. And the worst business decision that I ever made was not just stopping everything and building it then. I did the test, had the outpouring of response, created the methodology, did all of the lessons. And then um, some friends from iCrack to join another startup were really excited about it, convinced me to go join. And I put my idea on hold. And there was always that sense of, okay, now's not the right time to start my own company. And that's, that's wrong. It's always the right time to start your own company. Now is always the time. Um, so I wish that I had started sooner and just kept with it then. 
And I, I think that, you know, and I, and I probably feel a little bit the same way. So as I, and I do the intro, not a hijacking your story at all, but I do, you know, Miller IP law and I did, yeah. um, you know, and I'm a serial entrepreneur and yet for a while there, I, you know, I went and did, and I'd not be griping, but I went and worked for some big law firms and, you know, worked with the top 100. I worked with an Amazon and an Intel and other name recognition. You'd be like, oh, those are awesome companies. And it was, it was a great experience. And yet I'm probably the same way in the sense that what I love and enjoy and my passion is much more running my own companies, doing the startups, figuring out how to grow it, servicing clients, providing good customer service, making sure they're happy and all those things. And, you know, what, that's what I, it drives me. And yet I probably waited too long in the sense that you always, always can make an excuse for why is now is not now right. Why now is not the right time. And yet never, if you have that excuse, never, you're never going to have the right time and vice versa. Now is, as you said, now is always the right time. So, so, okay. Second question I'll ask. So somebody that's wanting to get into a startup, wanting to get into a smart, small business or just getting into that kind of that phase of life. What's the one piece of advice you'd give them? Well, if they're thinking about starting their own startup, the advice would be you can test anything right now. People get all of these hangups. Well, I'd have to develop it. I'd have to build this. I'd have to have money. And you don't have to. You can go out and start talking about it. You can identify your target market and start running ads or posts and talking to people and see if it resonates. So I just say the minute you think you're onto something, start running tests. The yeah. one thing, the one thing I'd build onto that, that I think people make this is don't run the tests on friends and family because they're always going to be way too nice. So that's very true. <laughs> yes. Yes. It's key. You've got to like figure out who your target market is, how to reach them and go run the tests there. Yeah. Cause that's the one lesson I've, I've seen too many people hit is, Oh, everybody says it's great. Well, who did you ask? Well, I asked my friend, I asked my parents, I asked my spouse and you know, they can be maybe a good initial sounding block, but they're always, they're never going to tell you that your idea is a bad idea because they're much too close and want or don't want to hurt feelings. And so I think that to your point, there's a lot of avenues you can test things and go out and get that customer feedback. And that's one thing that I've learned on a few of the businesses I've done as well is that never too early to get that customer feedback because it informs a lot of the path you'll take and the road and what you'll do. So I think those are both the good lesson or, you know, worst decision was a good lesson learned. And also that's a good lesson learned as well. So well, people that want to reach out to you, they want to get involved, they want to invest with you, they want to be a customer, they want to give it, you know, give it as a gift or anything else, what's the best way to connect up with you? Yeah, come chat. You can email me at melinda at lessonsup.com. That's M-A-L-I-N-D-A. And if that's too hard to remember, you can just give me a call at 510-671-0357 or lessonsup.com, the website. All right. Well, that's plenty of different ways to reach out to you and certainly encourage people that uh, want to reach out to connect and to, uh, to use the service, support the service and, or to uh, help it to grow. So, well, I appreciate you coming on the podcast. It's been fun to have you on and always, uh, always plenty of things I wish I had time to touch on and always figure I'll get to the, we'll have to have you back on someday. Um, for those of you that are interested in uh, applying to be a guest on the Inventive Journey, I'd love to have, hear your journeys and uh, be able to have you guys share them with us. Um, so go to inventivejourney.com to apply to be a guest on the podcast. For those of you that are listeners, make sure to subscribe so you can get the new uh, notifications of the newest episodes as they air. And uh, for any of you that are startups or small businesses that need help with uh, patents and trademarks, certainly feel free to reach out. Linda, thank you again for coming on. It was fun to talk with you and it was great to hear your journey and wish you the best of journey going forward. Thank you, Devin. Same to you.